No one knew what to expect on October 7th when the initial rocket barrages from the Gaza Strip began pounding Israel. Even veteran war-hardened residents of the Gaza envelope sensed immediately that something was different this time, but they had no idea what was to come. Adele Reimer has lived on Kibbutz Nirim for the past almost five decades, just two kilometers from the Gaza border. On the morning of October 7th, she hosted a Facebook live session a mere hour into the Hamas attack. This is just totally unprecedented. We've never, ever had anything like this before. First of all, it was a total surprise. As far as I know, there was no preemptive strike on our part. I'm going to... And the, the sheer number of rockets that are being shot at the same time, and it's, it's overwhelming Iron Dome. So I don't know where we're going from here, but this is, this, this is war. This is definitely war, and there's no way we can get around that. Another development is apparently there are infiltrations, people... Um, gliders infiltrating into the communities nearest the border. I haven't heard any in my area, but uh, communities further up north have been told to, uh, we were also told in to go into our houses and lock the doors. Actually, I'm going to go around and see, I don't even have, I don't even have doors that properly lock or windows that properly lock. I'm going to go around and close the blinds at least so that it looks like Nobody's home, although I really don't think infiltration here is um, a serious option, but, you know, you do what you can, right? Adele and the rest of Kibbutz Nirim are now in a hotel in Elat. The former teacher is a cherished Times of Israel blogger and a trained medical clown who always has a red nose in her bag. She has made it her life's mission to tell the world about what happened on October 7th. Five Israelis were murdered at Kibbutz Nirim, and another five are missing. So this week on What Matters Now, I, Amanda Borchel-Dan, speak with Adele Reimer about the events of October 7th and how she and her community are faring now. Technion Israel Institute of Technology is where some of Israel's brightest minds ask the biggest question of all. What if? What if they could take on the world's biggest challenges? What if they could develop life-changing environmental, scientific, health, medical, and technological discoveries that will make a huge impact on Israel and the planet? But they don't just ask the question, they answer it too. They turn those ideas into reality. They make them happen. To see just some of the incredible things they've achieved, get the Technion Booklet of Wonders at ats.org wonders. We hope it inspires you to give them your support so they can keep doing what they do best. The American Technion Society. World-changing discoveries by Israel's brightest minds made possible by you. Adele, thank you so much for joining me today from your hotel in Elat. Thank you for having me. We are going to talk about life before, during, and after 
the horrendous October 7th attack on Israel, the massacre that saw 1,400 people dead, mostly civilians, some of whom were your friends. I first of all would like to talk about, however, the kibbutz and how you approach the kibbutz. You've lived there my whole entire life. As far as I know, you joined the kibbutz in 1975. Is that correct? That's right. So tell us about Kibbutz Nirim. So Kibbutz Nirim is a kibbutz that was founded. Uh, it's one of the Echadasari Nekudot, the 11 points, that was founded in 1946. On one night in 1946, Motzei Yom Kippur, after Yom Kippur was out, 11 different communities set out on the same night to have a presence in the Negev so that when the state would have been eventually be declared, we would have people, communities in the Negev. And obviously our listeners can hear from your accent that you are not a native Israeli-born woman. How did you arrive at Kibbutz Nirim? So um, I was in Young Judea, a Zionist youth movement, and I, after high school, I went on a a year program, Young Judy Year Course 72-73, and I fell in love with the place. I went back to the States, to New York, in August 73, and I had intended to go to NYU Theater School, but I was in Israel when they were having the, um, the auditions, so I was just like waiting for the winter term to come along and doing odd jobs. And then August 1973, the Yom Kippur War broke out. And I said, well, what am I doing in the States? Israel needs me. And that's when I started the procedure for making Aliyah through the Jewish agency. And I finally made Aliyah to Kibbutz Keturah in December 1973, near Elat, not far from where I am now. And as soon as I landed, because I was just turned 19, I got, and, and it was, you know, still wartime, I got my draft papers and was told to to show up at the draft board within a year. I, I went into the army and in the middle of my army service, I realized that I wasn't really happy on Keturah. And that's how I got to Kibbutz Nirim because I could only move someplace where the army would approve of. And Nirim, because it was on the border and it was a small kibbutz, I was able to go to Nirim. When I was in the army already on Nirim, my army service was there. I was stationed on Nirim, so it was like already home base. Home base, serving your community. And anyone who has been to a kibbutz throughout Israel, I mean, they differ obviously quite greatly, but it is an island of utopia, usually in the middle of some other type of country. In this case, of course, it's quite arid where you live, and yet I imagine your kibbutz is quite beautiful. It is beautiful and green, and we have amazing landscaping crews, and we have definitely fulfilled Ben-Gurion's dream of making the desert bloom. Now, you have lived there for, as I said, my entire life almost. I'm 48, and you've been through so many wars, so many barrages, so many disasters, that on October 7th, as you blogged for the Times of Israel, or our blog's editor, Miriam Herschlag, collected your posts and created this blog for October 7th. Mm -hmm. In the beginning 
of the barrages, you you seemed blasé almost. This isn't your first rodeo. You've been down this road before. You're saying stuff like, oh, it just doesn't stop. Apparently, there will be a war. And yet, at the same time, an hour into the barrages, you went on Facebook Live, and you were outside of your safe room. And it just seemed at that point that you learned about infiltrators being around on the kibbutzim, on the different settlements around uh, the Gaza envelope. But yet, you weren't very concerned. Tell me about the evolution of that day for you. So even as we speak now, by the way, there are rockets in, in my area I'm seeing pop up on the on the TV screen. So we realized pretty right, like right away, I, I actually Facebook lived from the first few moments even saying, because you could see on the TV, in the Facebook live, you could see the alarm pop ups saying where the alarms were and some children's show, you know, some totally detached children's show going on in, in the background. Nobody nobody realized what was going on yet. But we realized from the very beginning that this was something different because it was such a heavy barrage. You know, usually you get one rocket, two rockets on your community. And then like you see rockets all around by, by the pop-ups and everything. But here it was like on Nerim, it was one after another. We couldn't even, I was scared to stand up to close the iron sleeve of the window. Like my son and I were sitting on the floor in case there was shrapnel that came through the window because it was so intense that I, I was scared to stand up and close the, the, the window. Closing the window takes a few good seconds because it's really heavy. And I was scared to do that at that point. And then, I don't know, after it's hard. The timeline is hard. And I actually looked back on it this morning. It, it, it seems like about 15 minutes into the event that we were getting notifications that there were terrorist infiltrations. According to what it says on, on the blog that Miriam captured for me, it was like closer to 40 minutes later that we realized that they were inside my kibbutz, but I, I can't really recollect that. But it, it was not long after it started that we were told to go outside the safe room, lock the doors and windows as much as possible, close the shades, and to lock ourselves in the safe room because there were terrorists rampaging through the kibbutz. Terrorists had entered the kibbutz. And this was a new threat in a way. You have lived through so many rockets, but the idea that Hamas would have come into your home, had that ever entered your mind, really? Inconceivable for me. Although my daughter, who's now 41, has been scared of infiltration since she was eight. To such an extent that when she was doing, she did a year of text writing studies in Beit Berel. Her final project was making a movie that showed her, her this fear of hers in her childhood about how petrified she was living on Nirim, how scared she was that a terrorist was going to come up under her window and capture her. And I still have that movie. It's just eerie. This fear of a terrorist coming actually did come true. And when this happened, how did your family react? You said you were with your son. Where was the rest of your family? So my daughter and my son-in-law are separated. My daughter was in her house, petrified with fear. She, she was under the bed, 
turned off the lights and uh, on on my Facebook I posted her a, a translation of her of of her account and uh, so I'm sorry to get graphic but she had to go to the bathroom she did it on herself under the bed she she was scared to get out from under the bed and even to find a bag to do it in which many people did my son urinated in a bottle until there was no more bottles left than in a bag because we were supposed to not leave the safe room and of course in retrospect that was the right decision yeah although i did leave the safe room <laughs> i would not do that in front of my son like plus i didn't have i i cannot urinate into a bottle i'm not built that way yes So at one point we we heard bullets outside we heard grenades outside we heard RPGs exploding I mean these are not these are different than the the sounds that we often hear with rockets exploding and we heard voices speaking Arabic they were that close and my son who understands a little bit Arabic was sitting by the safe room door holding down the handle because the safe room door does not lock the safe room is safe against rockets and the lock that it has clicks down so that if a rocket hits someplace else in the house the implosion won't blow the door open but it it can be lo- unlocked from the outside you just lift up the handle from either side so in order to have it locked and have the pins the the iron pins jutting into the wall and the ceiling you have to hold down the handle so he was sitting by the door and holding down that handle and he heard them saying in Arabic come here. So we didn't know what that was about but we were not about to come here or anywhere and we just waited petrified petrified to hear that they were coming in the house and 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 petrified that that's it. This was the end like I've never seen such fear in my son's eyes and I'm sure vice versa. Then we did that day. We didn't say goodbye to each other. We probably did tell each other that we loved each other. I remember that. but we didn't say our goodbyes about an hour later things seemed to calm down and i had to go so i endangered us and i did the wrong thing and i opened up the safe room door very as quietly as i could so that if there were terrorists in the house i would i would hear it and you know close it immediately again but i was in pain i was already literally in physical pain We're talking about 6:30 in the morning when we did not go, get to go to the bathroom after a night's sleep. And this was about 10. And I saw the window opposite my safe room with the slats broken. So they never entered the house, but they tried. But they didn't try very hard because if they tried really hard, if they'd really wanted to, it would have been very easy. So that Arabic come here was apparently somebody else calling whoever was that was trying to break in calling him over to something else so whether it was divine intervention or dumb luck or or my late husband watching over me us terrorists did not enter my house but they did enter a house a few a few doors down and captured my neighbor Hana who is 79 years old and who I've known ever since I came to Nirim and her 51-year-old son and they're now someplace in Gaza and and the whole time we're in the safe room there we're like we have this internal uh messaging service and and we see people's messages we see people's frantic calls for help 
and we see them saying the terrorists are in our house. They're walking around in our house. We can hear them. They're setting fire to our house. They're burning our house from the inside. They're trying to open the safe room. And we see this all happening live. So you're just sitting there petrified, waiting for you to be next. You're watching like the messages, trying to figure out geographically who these messages are from and where they are in the community and just waiting. And there's, you know, nothing you can do but hold that handle. During the whole experience, because everyone now is connected by telephones, I'm sure you were connected with your family as well. And did you yourself ask for them to find help to help you both out of the situation? So... I didn't ask, oh, family from outside the kibbutz? Correct. No. I know that our, we have our first responders and our head of security, Daniel. They were in touch with anybody who could come help us. My stepson in Tel Aviv or my daughter in Neveilan weren't going to be swooping down to kibbutz Nirim helping us. And I certainly didn't want to worry them. I was in touch with my daughter on Nirim. She, in times of stress, she is not very verbal with me, but I know that she is with friends. So I just, once an hour, I made it a point to send her a message, how are you? And she'd send me a thumbs up. But she was petrified. I know she was petrified and suffering terribly. What I didn't know was that my son-in-law, who's one of the first responders, so he's armed, but he couldn't go out and join the first responders because my three granddaughters aged two, six, and eight were in the safe room with him and he couldn't leave them alone. So he was in the house. And what I found out only like much later, if not the next day, is that terrorists entered his house and he heard them walking around and making noise. And at one point he told his three little ones, my three granddaughters, hide under the blanket so that they wouldn't see anything and so that they wouldn't be seen. He said, you're going to hear a loud noise, but it's going to be okay. Do not come after me. I'll be right back. These kids never listen. They listened. He opened the safe room door and shot the terrorist that was just outside his safe room door. He tried to go out and get two others that were in the house but when he got to the threshold, he saw numerous armed terrorists outside and, and, and figured he'd cut his losses and go back and protect his children. And I knew nothing about this while it was happening. Only afterwards did I, did I discover it. Only last week when I went back to Nirim and I went back to his house, did I see it with my own eyes, the puddle of blood from the terrorist that was right in front of his safe room door inches away from my grandchildren. The army, all the, all the while we're, we're waiting for the army to come and save us because the first responders are meant to hold the fort for five minutes, 10 minutes, and then the army comes. But the army didn't come. So there were four guys out there with weapons, four brave men who were had some angel on their shoulders because nothing happened to any of them. And I, 
one of the things I've been doing while here in Eilat, I've been recording, videotaping um, their accounts. Because when, when we were told to evacuate, I grabbed a bunch of stuff and shoved them into a, tr uh, a, you know, a small suitcase. But I also grabbed my laptop and my camera because I knew I would be doing this. I've heard three very detailed accounts and it's just a miracle that they're alive and and they did what they could they really they they managed to kill seven terrorists out of the nine approximately there were 60 50 to 60 terrorists in the kibbutz altogether many 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 of them went back to gaza together with the the loot that they stole together with the four the five kidnapped people four from my community and one who was visiting so in the end, the forces altogether managed to kill nine of them. And it took from six, it took seven hours for the first army troops to arrive. Seven hours. These four guys held, held it down. And they told every family, you're on your own because we can't help everyone. You're listening to this podcast. So I know you care about the war in Israel right now. And you've been reading the headlines. Massacre in Gaza. Genocide perpetrated by Hamas. No, by Israel. But if you've been listening to this podcast long enough, you know one thing. This stuff seems complicated. And honestly, no one can really just pick a side or decide an opinion without really learning. Without really knowing what you're talking about. And that's where this podcast comes in. Check out Unpacking Israeli History, now in its sixth season. They have episodes with topics ranging from what is Hamas anyway, to whether Israel should ransom captured soldiers, and the history of Israel and its disengagement from Gaza in 2005. Unpacking Israeli History cuts through the noise and helps you understand Israel's present through understanding Israel's history. So, educate yourself. Learn the history behind the headlines. Find Unpacking Israeli History wherever you listen to your podcasts. As a community, after the army arrived, you were brought together into one of the communal buildings, correct? Slowly, but yes, because the, we couldn't just step outside our doors. We had to wait for the army to get to us. Way and we were given clear instructions only to open the door, the safe room door, if we heard our names being called. And there were people in some of the accounts. There was there there was one person who, who even though the army came and they called his name, he like asked them questions. Who's this? Who's the commander of that? Who like in order to test them, he did not trust that they weren't the Hamas. They started evacuating us at about 1.30 after going to the, the most dire areas. There, were, there was one house where there was a family with a baby that was eight days old. And their house was on fire. And they kept calling for help, begging for help, for the police, for the, for the army, for the fire department, anybody. They said, our baby's here and, and, and the room is filling with smoke because... The, the terrorists managed to dislodge the safe room door just enough so that smoke would be able to come in. 
So they went to evacuate them first and to the other areas of the kibbutz that were most in danger because their houses were on fire. And they got to my house about 5.15, something like that. And it took until at least nine at night for the entire community to be evacuated because they went house by house, clearing out, sterilizing the area around, being sure that there was no, you know, checking under every bush, every corner, every place that, that a terrorist could be hiding so that, you know, to keep us safe for the evacuation. And then they walked us through the kibbutz. They walked us around the long way. And I couldn't understand. There's, there's, we're under fire. There's still rocket fire. There could be terrorists loose. Why are we going the long way around? A, a, red, a rocket alert caught us in the middle. We just threw ourselves down on the ground and covered our heads. So it worked out. They were taking us the long way around so that we wouldn't go where there were dead bodies, so that we would be spared that sight. Although we did pass some, I did not see. One of the people that was that was with me said that he did see one of them. You you spent the night in the communal hall, and you were obviously not equipped for any kind of sleeping arrangements. And there's a picture of you with a tablecloth around your your shoulders, and you were even during that moment making jokes about what was happening, using humor to diffuse the situation, obviously not funny at all. And at what point were you taken out of the kibbutz entirely? So we we ha we slept there, kind of, sort of. If you can sleep on two chairs put together, blanketed in a tablecloth. But um, at around 1.30 the next day, we were told that it was safe enough for us to go to our houses quickly to pack up and we would be not and and when we finished packing to go into the safe room and wait there for word to um to go out to the buses the buses were there were four buses uh in different sections of the kibbutz that was not organized wonderfully i mean in all fairness there was really no time to organize very thoroughly who went on what bus. So when they gave the the word to go to the buses, we went to the bus and, but it took a long time to get the buses boarded. It took a long time, like there was a, a whole row of cars that were kind of blocking the way. I, I was sitting in that bus for 40 minutes, petrified that we would have rockets. And if you're in a bus with other people, you cannot evacuate an entire bus in zero to 10 seconds and get to someplace safe. But thank God there was no alert when we were in the bus. And then we evacuated about a quarter to three and drove through an active war zone. There were still, there were smoking cars on the side and, um, and, and charred bodies on the road and we drove through that. We had like an army escort, but what's an army escort going to do, you know, if you get attacked by soldiers on the side? I thought at first I thought, well, I won't sit next to a window in case a terrorist jumps out and starts shooting at the bus. But then somebody sat down next to me. So <laughs> I moved over to the window. I didn't breathe easy until we passed Beersheba and eventually got to Eilat 
at about 8 in the evening, 8.30. I'm not a, an observant religious person, but for the first time in my life, I googled Birkato Gomel and said it. You are in Eilat with your entire kibbutz. You evacuated as a community? Yeah. How many are you? We're about 400. The The great majority of us are here in the hotel. It's very hard. Very, very hard. Altogether in the country, there's something like 250,000 displaced people, north and south. So in, in, our, in our hotel, which just welcomed us so warmly and gave us such a big hug, it, all of our needs, all of our needs are seen to here. We've got three meals a day and the staff are wonderful and they bought us washing machines and dryers so that we can do our own laundry. And they've they just gone over and above to make us feel comfortable here. They had the first day, they, they gathered donations from people in a lot of clothing and toys and books and everything you can think of because people like my daughter and her three kids, she was scared to go back to, to her house to get anything. So she just left with the shirt on her back and the children. So they came with nothing. And the entire hall in the, uh, the lower floor of the hotel was filled with donations from people of, in a lot. New, secondhand, everything, whatever you need. But now the, the hotel is extremely crowded. It's extremely noisy. We have people from not only Nirim now, we have people from Sterot and from Ashkelon and, and Ashdod and Kiryat Shmona, like really all over. And it's gotten... It's gotten very hard. A lot of people have started complaining that you can't go to the dining room because it's too noisy. Like people who have hearing aids and I have hearing aids know how difficult it is to be in a dining room. And when you're in a dining room, there's lots of kids screaming and lots of noise. It's just your ears hurt. It's physically painful. Um, so while we, we appreciate, we, we, really appreciate everything that's been done for us here. But the kibbutz, all of the kibbutzim, all of the communities are, are looking for other alternatives in between solutions so that we won't have to stay in the hotels. You know, eventually the hotels are going to want to get back to being hotels and not refugee centers. And so the kibbutzim are looking into different options. I'm not on that committee, so I have no idea. Adele, as we were speaking, you said that uh, you heard or you saw rocket attacks already again still on your kibbutz. So obviously going back home is not an option right now in terms of safety. But even in terms of infrastructure, the, the destruction is so rampant. How long do you think it would take? I wouldn't say it's rampant, but it's possible. It's still possible. So I went back to my kibbutz last week. A team from the BBC had come to my kibbutz in 2020 to, um, to cover the elections. They were, you know, in Israel and they came to me and they were with me when I voted. They came to me, with me to the to the office and voted. And and they reached out to me at the beginning of last week 
to, to ask if they could come interview me again. And I said, well, you know, I'm going to Nirim on Tuesday. You could come meet me there if you want. And they did. So I got a ride up to Kibbutz Tzeilim. And in Tzeilim, I got out and I joined the BBC cars and drove into the kibbutz. And they documented my return to the kibbutz, my return to my house. And, and they were with me in my house. And first of all, it was, it's less scary when you're in a scary place with somebody. They were there when, you know, they documented me hanging up a flag on my porch and um, changing my shirt to a shirt that says we won't give up on Nirim from 2014. And they helped me empty my fridge and throw out the garbage. And and when I wanted to, I wanted to take my car home because I figure if my car is one piece and, and many, many, many cars were burnt to a crisp or shot through or slashed. I didn't know what situation my car was in. So I had people check it the day before. Somebody was on Nirim. I sent my key up the day before. The guy checked my car. He said, we'll bring cables and you'll be able to jumpstart it. So I figured if it's in one piece, you know, why leave it there to, for the, to be rocket fodder? Can't move my house, but I can move the car. Keep that safe. Um, so they helped, but it was like covered with dust. So I, and I started washing it down that the BBC guy said, Oh, let me do that for you. And so, so they were very sweet and very helpful. And then I took them, uh, another rocket now at Kisufim. Um, I took them, uh, for a, a short walk around the kibbutz, around to the most, uh, destroyed, the highly destroyed places where that house with, where the baby was the house that was burnt and the other houses, like an entire corner where the younger people lived in the smaller houses was, was just totally destroyed. We went into my son-in-law's house, which is where I saw what it actually looks like with my own eyes. We went to see where the gate had been breached. I did not go into the house where our, one of our members and his daughter was slaughtered. I that was already too much for me. It was heartbreaking being back there, seeing what had been done. But, but on the other hand, it was also in a way encouraging because I saw that most of the kibbutz, most of the houses are intact as of now. Again, every time there's a, a pop-up that says Nirim, my house could be hit. You never know. Adele, do you see yourself going back there, moving back and living back in Kibbutz Nirim? Yes, but but the army has a lot of work to do. The government has a lot of work to do to to earn back my trust and sense of security. But I believe they will, because if you give up on the Western Negev, you can give up on Israel. But I I, I can't promise that my daughter will be back. I haven't even talked to her about it, and I'm not going to talk to her about it. I've heard from many people. I don't ask anybody, usually. I refrain from asking people because it's just too fresh. You know, people, we think about one day to the next. I don't think about what I'm doing next week. I don't have plans for the future. We just take it one day at a time. So I don't know how many young people, young kibbutz, uh, members with young kids in their families are going to be back. I don't know how they'll be able to, if they'll be able to 
feel safe letting their children play freely on on the lawns again. I mean, my sense of security was so strong when I lived when I was there. I'm a, an amateur photographer, and I've never had any problem getting in my car, driving out the back gate towards the west, towards Gaza, driving through the fields in the evening, taking pictures all by myself, all alone, not a soul around. I've never been scared. And something very serious is going to have to happen in order to reinstill that sense of security and resilience. Because that's the name of the game. If you don't feel secure and resilient, you, you can't live there. The, the country spent billions of dollars on safe rooms, on this fancy schmancy underground barrier that supposedly was impenetrable on this fence that couldn't be cut through, couldn't be gotten, couldn't be infiltrated. And we can't do that anymore because they'll find a way. So it's either us or them, either us or them. We can't, I cannot live next door to those neighbors anymore. They must be evicted or destroyed. I prefer destroyed. And I mean, it's hard for me to say that because there are people that I'm in touch with in Gaza, even today, but I've lost faith. I don't know who to trust anymore. There's, there's somebody who lives, there are people who I know who live out, who have escaped from Gaza. And these are people who I've been in touch with for years already. And I know that they believe there can be a different way. And my hope is that when we destroy the Hamas, that these will be the, the people that are going to lead the Gazans and re-educate the Gazans to a different way of life so that we can be good neighbors eventually. And I was always the first person to say that this is not a conflict that can be solved with weapons. It has to be solved with diplomacy. But October 7th, something in my DNA switched. And now I realize that before we can make peace, we have to make war. Adele, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. This week, Adele published a blog on the Times of Israel in which she discusses a new photography project she has launched. She's begun taking black and white portraits of her community members wrapped in a huge Israeli flag. Although they are currently transplanted to the most southern city of refuge, she writes in her blog that in this state of homelessness, home is where your people are. Nirim people are here. I'll leave a link to this and other blogs Adele has written on and since October 7th in the program notes. Special thanks to Charlie Summers for his help with What Matters Now transcripts. What Matters Now is produced and edited by the Podwaves. If you have comments about this or other episodes, please drop us an email at podcast at timesofisrael.com. Until next time, Shalom. Shalom.